Good morning. Next Sunday, we're going to be having missionaries Michael and Jessica Dunlop here uh, with us. And uh, they'll be presenting their ministry that they're going to be going to in France in the evening. It'll be a combined service, and um, it'll be a neat opportunity to hear about uh, what God has called them to do. Uh, having missionaries come is good because it, it does two things. One, it, it allows people to know of the need. Uh, the need, uh, sometimes if you don't know the need, you can't really go and help. And you can't be praying unless you know what the need is. And so I'm hoping that as people see uh, what they're going to be doing, some might say, hey, I, I, I want to go and help over there. And then also I think it helps, um, they're kind of a, a younger couple, and uh, it might help some of the parents to say, hey, look, there's a couple of younger people who their parents were okay to let them go and, and go serve the Lord over there. Maybe I should consider letting my kids go too uh, and let them serve over there somewhere. So it has a dual purpose, and uh, I want you to uh, please, please come and listen to their ministry. Uh, they're going to be flying in uh, Saturday afternoon and then be flying out Monday. If, uh, if you have a guest room and you are a spectacular host, I mean like an incredible host, like, you know, those, those type that's like a bed and breakfast and you know, if you're that type of person and you would like to host them, please let me know, um, and that way you'd get to know them a little bit better. It'll be a great opportunity. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 22 and 23. Ephesians chapter 1, 22 and 23, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, this is the word of the Lord. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity. We can study your word. I pray now that um, we'll understand it and that we'll put it into practice. Father, there might be some here that have not accepted Christ as their Savior. They're trying to uh, have a relationship with you through other ways, but Father, we know that you can only come to you through Jesus Christ, and I pray that the Spirit would convict them and show them their need of putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, other of us here, we, uh, we have been in rebellion against you. And I pray that your spirit would work in us and that we would repent and be submissive. Father, other of us have been obedient, and I pray that your spirit would encourage our hearts to continue serving you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. When the idea of leadership, of headship, of authority comes up, what, what comes to your mind? Do you, do you like the idea of authority, of leadership? And some might say, well, yes, if I am the leader, I, I love leadership. I love authority if I'm the leader and if I'm in the authority. But if, if somebody is over you, are you constantly pushing against it? Are you always trying to fight against it? Or do you find joy and happiness in the fact that somebody is over you telling you, what you're supposed to be doing. 
Well, we see in this text here that uh, Paul has been expressing, he's been expressing a, a prayer of thanksgiving for this church in Ephesus. He is so thankful to the Lord for them. Paul had heard, as it says in verse 15, 15 all the way to 23 is this one long prayer. It's one long sentence in Greek. And he expresses that he has heard about their faith, their faith in God. Not only has he heard about their faith, but he has heard about their love. He is imprisoned and um, he, the news has come all the way to him. And Paul has this desire that the Spirit would give them wisdom and give them revelation, specifically so that they can know God better, that they can have a deeper knowledge of God. Now, uh, Paul's desire of this having the Spirit give them wisdom and revelation is so that they can be united in this knowledge of God, so that all the different individuals have the same knowledge of God, and that's what's going to bring them together. That's what's going to cause them to be united. Now, sometimes we substitute a unity in knowledge of God for other things. And that's something that's quite unfortunate. We, we sometimes have the tendency of uniting, of rallying around other things other than our knowledge of God. For example, sometimes we can... Um, uh, gather around our common heritage. I mean, you can imagine there's the church in Ephesus. Paul's been maybe five, seven years where he hasn't gone to them. Uh, he was there involved at the beginning. But you can imagine that there's believers there. And some say we have this common heritage that Paul led us to the Lord. And we were there. We were part of the, 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 the charter group, the, the founding ones of this church. And, and there's the new people that have come. You know, a, a division. What unites this group and that group, that group are the newer people. This group is the ones who were there when Paul was there. Common heritage sometimes, but common heritage is a poor, poor substitute in comparison to a unity found in the knowledge of God. Uh, others can find commonality by their likes. We're the church that likes popcorn and bubblegum. The other church down the road, they don't like popcorn and bu bubblegum. <laughs> shame, shame on them. And sometimes people can say, we are the church that likes X, Y, Z. And because we like this, we're together against all the other churches of the world. We stand firm on our like of popcorn and bubblegum. But popcorn and bubblegum is also a very poor substitute for having a unity in the knowledge of God. God being the common factor that unites them, having this knowledge of glorifying the Father. Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that our lives in church should reflect God's sovereign will to have Christ as head and to control every aspect of us. Our lives and church should reflect God's sovereign will to have Christ as head and to control every aspect of us. We see in verse 22 that God chose to submit everything to Christ. Uh, as we're looking here in verse 22, it says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, Greek is an interesting language in that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to follow uh, sentence structures. In English, we, we tend to put subject, verb, and then what corresponds afterwards. Now, you can 
uh, prepose the sentence by putting some other things, but usually it follows that, that, um, that pattern. In Greek, if you want to put a certain emphasis on a certain word, all you have to do is put um, whatever ending you want. So if it's a direct object ending, uh, you can put it at the beginning. And so you read that word first, and it shows that the person speaking or the person writing has wanted your eyes to capture this, even though it's the direct object and it's supposed to be kind of at the end. Uh, he's putting it at the beginning. And, and Paul does that here. And of course, translating, it wouldn't make any sense to do it, but he, he says, he puts all things right after the and. And all things he put in subjection, if you're going to read it more of a literal type translation. He's putting an emphasis on all things. Now, what in the world is the all things? Well, contextually, all things is, is related to how we talked about in, in verse 21, where far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and uh, name that is named, not only in this age or in the one to come, that God has put him, has placed him, has seated him, has put him, exalted him far above everybody else. But then contextually it goes on further to start talking about the church. So all includes all the powers, all authorities, everything that exists that tries to usurp authority. And even in the church, this position, this exalted position, it says, he has put all things, how? In, in which way? In subjection. He, he put it. Now, who's the he? The he refers back to verse 19 and 20, where it's talking about God. God has done this work. God has, has put, and he put all things, all things. He has put it in subjection. It's to cause to be in a submissive relationship, to be subordinate. This is God's will. This is God's desire. This is what he has chosen to do, to put everything under, under what? Well, if we keep on reading, it says, under his feet. Who is the his referring back to? Well, the his refers back to Christ. So everything is putting, being put under Christ's feet. Now, this is a, uh, <laughs> this is a interesting image as you think about it. He's not putting everything beside Christ as if they were co-equal. Like, you know, well, maybe Christ a little bit higher, but everything else just a little, little bit lower. No. You don't get to a further extreme as being at the feet, being totally at the feet. I mean, it's using a negative uh, expression. You remember in James, when James is talking about don't be like those people who uh, they see somebody come in that has the fancy rings and the robes, and they say, uh, you sit here beside me. And then comes somebody with not-so-nice rings and not-so-nice robes, and they say, you sit where? Down here at my feet, right? It shows a, a distance. That's a negative example of this. This here, God has chosen, sovereignly chosen, to put Christ above what? All. All. Now, as we, as we look at this, all principalities, all things are put under Christ. Now, as we see this, we see that he is quoting from an Old Testament passage. An Old Testament passage found in Psalms chapter 8. Now, we'll go to Psalms chapter 8, and we'll notice some things about it. That it's a, a psalm that really focuses on, on uh, people, 
on humans. Uh, he, he mentions about, he starts off by talking about uh, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor in the heavens. In verse 3 he says, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? There's the question. God, you made everything out there. Just by your, your fingers, you've made everything. Who in the world is man for you to consider? I mean, we're just nothing. We're nothing on a, on a, on a huge world, and this world is nothing in this huge universe. Why would you consider us? And then he talks about, in verse 6, uh, you make him to rule over the works of your hand and have put all things under his feet. And he's talking about that God has ordained this, and it's a reference back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, in the creation mandate. You remember in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God had created everything, created man, created man in his own image, and gave him authority, authority over fish, authority over birds, authority over creeping things. He's given this authority. But unfortunately, man sinned. And sinning, he gave up this authority. Now there's a God of this world who goes around uh, like a, a roaring lion looking to whom he can devour. He's given up this authority. Now, anticipating... There's a failure on Adam's part, but there's an anticipation of a second Adam. A second Adam that would regain authority, that would reestablish uh, God's rule here. And you start to see it, for example, in different passages. Genesis chapter uh, 3, 15, it talks about that one was going to come and, uh, and was going to uh, stomp on the snake's head. Uh, also, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10, it talks about how Moses, Moses was able to speak with God face to face, but it said, no other prophet yet has, has come like this. It's anticipating a prophet, a prophet that speaks face to face with God, but no one has come yet that, that can do this. Even Moses, who spoke to God face to face, he failed. He didn't get to go into the promised land. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 and 35, you remember that Nebuchadnezzar had this, this dream of this statue. Huge statue, uh, head of gold, etc., and all the different uh, feet of clay and, and, and iron. And uh, there comes this stone, and the stone hits the statue at its feet, and it comes crumbling down the statue, not the stone. The stone grows and becomes this huge mountain. And, and it talks about Christ's kingdom that will come. It clarifies a little bit more in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. There you see the Ancient of Days. Daniel's seeing this vision. There's the Ancient of Days. And one like the Son of Man comes, and, it, and this one is given all authority, all dominion, forever and ever and ever. The, the scriptures have been anticipating a second Adam to come who will right all the wrongs of Adam. Uh, we see this in Romans chapter 5. Uh, we'll go to Romans chapter 5. Uh, we won't read all the verses, but Romans chapter 5, uh, 12 through 21 is, is a really neat passage to, to look at. Uh, verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, 
even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. It's anticipating a second Adam. The first Adam brought transgression and death. The second Adam brings life, is a source of life. The only way that you can have life is being in the second Adam. Now, all of us are born, and we're born in the first Adam. And what we have is death and separation. Those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have now are in the second Adam, and they have life, hope, everlasting life. It, here it's, in, it's talking about this, when it talks about he has put everything in uh, subjection under his feet. This Christ is the second Adam where he regains all control. Now, it has been God's will to establish Christ in this position. God determined, he, he put everything subject to Christ. Now, theologically, I'm not sure that there would be a single person here that would argue against the supremacy of Christ. I, I, I doubt that we would find a single one theologically here in this group that would argue against the supremacy of Christ. Furthermore, I bet that we wouldn't find a single person that would want to articulate that they would want to uh, question God's sovereign choice in putting Christ above all. But when we move away from theology and we move into the aspect of daily life, that's where we really start to see how we're living, is it not? Because we can articulate all types of theological thought. I mean, we can have tattooed all over us the, the Westminster uh, Catechism, Hallenberg Catechism, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. We can have those memorized, but it's how we live. And that's where it shows, do we live to obey God's will, or do we obey to live our own will? I, I agree with you, God, that Christ should be exalted, but you don't understand my situation. You don't understand that this person just cut me off, so I need to tell them what I think about them. Uh, you don't understand that, um, and you go into your excuses. And really, all that is is nothing more than a conflict between God's will of putting Christ supreme and your own will of saying, I will be supreme. I have my rights. Who is going to win out in that battle? When we look at this, we have to question, does my life glorify God? See, it's easy to say my statements glorify God the thoughts I articulate, the, the way I dress up, and I come to church, and I spend time, I carve out time to be here, but does my life glorify God? God has chosen. He has put everything in subjection, so when we decide that I would prefer my will, we're doing nothing more than being rebellious against God's will. Christ is the second Adam who reestablishes the authority. Christ rectifies the wrongs of Adam. And the question is, will we put ourselves in subjection to Christ? Now, the other thing that we see in this is that God chose to give Christ authority over the church. Christ decided to give authority uh, over the church. We see there in the second part of verse uh, 22. And he gave him, 
as head over all things to the church. Again, the, the way the sentence structure is, is made, him is put first. So, and him, he gave. Now, who's the him? The him refers to Christ. The he is God. God gave. God is the one doing this action. God is the one doing this. Now, what is going to be presented here is a metaphor. And there are different metaphors that are used, and the purpose of the metaphor is to give clarity. Uh, we could say that Christ is related to the church, and, and that would be fine and dandy. Christ is related to the church. But how do we understand that? It's not very concrete. In which way is Christ related to the church? So some metaphors have been given. For example, if you go to 1 Peter 5, 4, in 1 Peter 5, 4, you see that Christ is the chief shepherd over the flock, which is the church. Christ is the chief shepherd. He's the, the ultimate. Uh, he's in charge. And the church is the flock. We're nothing more than dumb animals. That's what we are. And we need Christ's care. That's the image. That's the image that he decided to use. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 22. Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the church is, is the building. That, another image, another metaphor. And it gives another perspective on, on the relationship between Christ and the church. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is, is important. What direction is the building going to be built in? Uh, what, where, where is it going to face? How big is it going to be? It's determined by the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. The rest is the church, the building. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. Christ is the foundation. And the church is built upon the foundation of Jesus. Now, it goes in, if you read uh, further on into the chapter, he talks about the works that the church is doing can be categorized in different materials. Uh, some is gold, silver, and precious stones. <clears throat> Other is wood, hay, and stubble. Uh, depending on how you work, is how you minister, how you obey God, it depends on the materials that they are. Some go through fire and they become more purified. Wood, hay, and stubble, they, they do not. <laughs> they go through fire and they become ash, right? Uh, that's the image that is given there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. In Ephesians 5, 22 through 27, and Revelation 19, 7, uh, Christ is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. Shows another relationship. Uses this metaphor to show another relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, one of a union that, that happens. Uh, some also like to put in there John chapter 15, 1 through 8. Uh, you'll have to go to... Uh, Larry's Sunday school class to find out is that an appropriate image for the church or is that an appropriate image for believers? You, you'll have to go and debate that. It's a great conversation to have. Uh, but how are, how are believers related to Christ? They're in Christ. How do they get source of life? By being in Christ. How can they bear fruit? By themselves? <laughs> no, no way. They'll weather and die, and they'll be picked up and thrown into the furnace to be burned. There's only life in Christ. 
Now, these metaphors give different perspectives of a reality that we still don't totally understand. The unity, the, the, the aspect of Christ and the church, we're not going to get. We have these images, and these images inform us, but we don't totally understand it. Paul gives another metaphor, and that is the metaphor of Christ being the head. And, and as I said, uh, God gave him as head. Now, how are we supposed to understand this aspect of head? What does that mean? How, how do we understand that he's the head? If we were to look it up in a dictionary, head is that part of the body that contains the brain. Well, that's very informative, isn't it? I mean, that just helps us a lot and it blesses our heart. We could just close our Bibles now and go home, right? Uh, sing a song. It's the part that contains the brain. Wow. Uh, it, it also has another meaning, and it's, it's, the, um, it's a high status, the, the head. It's that part that um, is on top of everything else. Uh, <clears throat> the person is the head of the company, per se. So there, you can have it as, as a physical head on a body. You can also have a, a status. If we start looking up uses of head in the Bible, we can see that it gets used in different fashions. For example, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it anticipates one that's going to come from Eve who will one day crush the head of the serpent. This crushing of the head of the serpent, the head seems to be its, its source of life. So as it gets the head crushed, it no longer has life. It can no longer do anything. So here in, in uh, Genesis 3.15, head seems to be a source of life for the serpent. It's also used in Genesis 11.4. Uh, you remember the, the, there in uh, chapter 11 is the construction of this tower, this tower who they want, the, the, the top, or what is actually the Hebrew word, the, the head to reach the heaven. And in this sense, head is uh, the unifying factor by which they were all working towards. It was their goal. Their goal is to have the head all the way up in heaven. So in this sense, head is being used as that which unites them for one single purpose. We will get this tower all the way to heaven. So head can have different ideas, different purposes. It says Christ was made the head, and we have to ask, of what? Of what is Christ the head of? Well, it says, if we read the verse, uh, head over all things to the church. He's over the church. Now, uh, this is the first time that Paul uses church in this epistle. It only took him 22 verses, and he finally mentions this word church. Now, we all know what a church is. I mean, we're sitting in a church, right? So we can just jump over that word and don't have to explain it for anything, right? Well, Let's just pause for a moment and explain it. There might be somebody online watching that doesn't know. I mean, I know you guys know what a church is, but maybe online. So the word church comes from this Greek word, and it's really comprised of two words. The first is uh, kind of a preposition, which means out, out of. And the second is to call. So it's this call out. And it has this uh, secular use of an assembly, a, a group, a congregation, a congress, a group of people that have been called out for a certain meeting. 
It's used uh, a lot in secular text. It's used in Acts chapter 19, 32 to talk about how the town was, the whole town was in assembly, was in confusion. It's not talking about a, a, a church per se like this one. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, Stephen is talking about Israel in the wilderness, and he uses that Israel was this assembly. He was, Israel was this church. It uses the Greek word there. They were called out of Egypt. Uh, but once we get in the New Testament and we're looking at the epistles, we see that uh, God chose a word to give it a theological nuance. And uh, how is a word given an extra meaning? Well, by context. Context determines the meaning. And as you use a word and you want to specialize that word, use it with a certain context to specialize it. And there's two sense in which the word church is used in the New Testament uh, in a specialized form, in a theological form. The first is a universal church, and the second is local church. Universal church is, is the body, as it says here, verse 23, which is his body. So the church, which is his body. Now, the church, the universal church, it's uh, all those who have been saved from Pentecost. And the reason I put Pentecost is because in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, uh, it's talking about how John baptized with water, but they were still anticipating a baptism of the Spirit. Then in Acts 2, 4, they were filled with the Spirit. And then in Acts 11, uh, 15 through 17, Peter is talking to the church in Jerusalem and giving them a reason why he was in Cornelius' house sharing the gospel. They want to know why he was there, and he starts to explain. He says, look, I went there, I got invited to go there, and I asked them why I was there, and they said that we were supposed to call you, and you were going to tell us. And so I started sharing in the gospel, and they believed, and what happened at that point is that they were baptized by the Spirit just like we were at the beginning. And that's Acts chapter 2. So the church, the universal church, the body of Christ, is all those who are saved from Pentecost, all the way to the rapture of the church. Now, if you see the church as a unique entity, as a mystery, as Paul is going to be mentioning here in chapter 2, as he's in chapter 3, and as he's already mentioned in chapter 1, there is a certain aspect that's different and this uh, difference is we see in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. This church is, uh, Paul writes them and says that they're going to be raptured out. <clears throat> How does a person get into the church, the, this body of Christ? They, they do it by, by pure will. Pure will. I will determine to put myself in the body of Christ. No, not at all. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 11 and 12. Paul is writing to the church and it says, By one Spirit, all are baptized, placed into the body of Christ. It happens at the moment of salvation. When the person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit places them into the body of Christ. And as he's already mentioned, he's been, they're sealed there. What is Christ doing right now in this church? Well, Ephesians 5, 26-27, He is making her spotless and without blemish. That is the work that Christ is doing in the church, to present the church spotless and without blemish. Now, a local church should reflect the body of Christ. 
I mean, it would be kind of absurd to think that that's the definition of the universal, the body of Christ, but we look totally different from that. I mean, that would be absurd. I mean, to think that someone could articulate that, like this is the purpose that Christ is doing, but we're going to be just totally different from that. It would be absurd. We, we would need to reflect this. So what is a local church? A local church is a group, an organized group of saved, baptized individuals. We like to hear people's testimony of, of salvation and their uh, public profession through baptism. Do every once in a while we get somebody unsaved? Sure we do. Uh, they, they say, they give a great testimony, and then they start living their life, and we start, and that person's lost. I mean, they are lost, lost. You know, uh, In the universal, in the body of Christ, there's no mistakes. But we, we sometimes make mistakes. But it's an organized group of saved, baptized individuals who obey two ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, who have two offices, which is of the uh, pastor, elder, bishop, and deacons, and they come to glorify God, edify believers, and evangelize the lost. The purpose is in celebrating the two ordinances, glorifying God, edifying believers, and evangelizing the lost. That's, that's the point of the church. Now, as we look at this, this verse, there is an, a theological aspect that is being developed chronologically that is very important to, to note and to apply. It's found in verse 20 and then in verse 22. It says that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There's the first point. And seated him. Second point. These are chronological events. Raised him, seated him. And then the third is found in, in verse uh, 22 where he says, and he gave him head over all things the church. Uh, some brothers and sisters in Christ will see a church in the Old Testament. You'll see the church, a New Testament church in the Old Testament. But if we follow this chronology, it would imply that that New Testament church is going around headless in the Old Testament, right? It's kind of like that thing from uh, Sleepy Hollow, the, the headless horseman. And, and, I mean, that guy was all types of mad. And what was he wanting? He was wanting a head, right? So there was the, the church in the Old Testament that was going around headless. You know, it was like, I don't know how to do it. It's kind of sounded like that. Ah, give me a head, you know. Ah. No, that wasn't going on at all. There's a sequence of events that happens. The church doesn't start till when? To after Christ has been crucified, he's been raised, he ascended, and then the church starts. And we see that in Acts 2. So there's a chronological, theological point that is important to, to look at there. Now, when we see this metaphor being used of Paul, he's saying that Christ is the head, and he's talking about the universal church. How are we supposed to understand this headship? Uh, some say, well, it's best to understand headship in light of Old Testament and Jewish thought. There's a problem with trying to understand it in Old Testament and Jewish thought because a high priority was put with uh, people's, people's bowels, their, their intestines. Uh, for example, 
In Genesis chapter 43, verse 30, you remember the scene where uh, uh, Joseph is there with his brothers and he is moved in his, the, the actual Hebrew word, he is moved in his bowels and he takes off running and hides himself and starts crying. In, in other words, his, his bowels caused him to, to act. Um, if you go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul uses a word, uh, he says uh, in the New American Standard, a heart of compassion. And it's a word that talks about your inward parts, your, your, your bowels, your intestines. And, and the idea is that this heart of compassion, their intestines move you to act certain ways. So if you start seeing like that, you almost start seeing uh, uh, kind of a fight between what what's, has a priority the head or the intestines, the bowels, per se. So using Old Testament or Jewish thought doesn't really help us explain the metaphor. Some have thought, well, maybe Greek philosophy. Maybe if we look at how Greeks thought philosophically about the head, maybe that, that could give us some idea. Well, there was a kind of a, a, a debate that was going on between which was more important. Some saw that the heart was most important because it, it pumped blood to the head, you know. Uh, how could a head exist without, without blood? And so therefore the heart was the most important thing. And, and, and especially when you think about uh, you would want somebody with a pure heart. And a person with a pure heart was a good person and so that's what you want. While there was another group that said, no, the, the head tells the body, tells the heart, tells everything what to do. So therefore, the head is most important. So if we were to look at this, Old Testament Jewish thought doesn't really help us understand the metaphor. Greek philosophical thought doesn't help us. How could we determine how this metaphor is being used? Well, the answer is context. Context, context, context. Context tells us how he is using this. If we look right above, the, before he talks about how he put everything in subjection to the church, he says he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him head over the church. The idea is authority. He has put, he has exalted Christ above everything. Contextually, Christ is above everything. There's an authority aspect to this. He is the source of life because if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 32, you see that it is Christ who is sanctifying and growing the church. But here, the idea is one of authority. It's what unites the whole church together. Now, God chose to give Christ authority over the whole church. And we see that Christ unites the body. He, he brings all the aspects together. What brings us together should not be that we've all gone to the same high school. What brings us together should not be that we like to sing from the same hymnal. What brings us together is not that we all like the same temperature inside this room. What unites us should be Jesus Christ. That, because he's the head. That's the unifying factor. If you substitute, if you substitute Christ as head and you put something else as the motivating factor for unity, you've lost it. You no longer have Christ as head. You, you've exalted something else in its place. 
And then it becomes a struggle. Well, I want my favorite thing to take priority. Oh, I want my favorite thing to take priority. And then it's a struggle inside the church. Because Christ, he's no longer the head. And now it's just my personal opinion of what I think is important should be in this place of headship. Christ unites the body. Christ is the head. That means I'm not the head. It means you're not the head. You might say, well, I'm the heart, and the heart is important. God has already established that the head would be supreme. There's no, there's no second place here. It's Christ and Christ alone. He is the one in charge. He is the head. Now, Christ has not only is the head, but God chose to permeate Christ in every believer. And this we see in verse 20, 23. It says, which is his body, talking about the church, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Uh, <clears throat> he fills all in all. This aspect of body, if I said my body feels sick, Another way of saying my body feels sick is I would say I feel sick, right? Because I and my body are one. Yet there is a distinction that's being done here in the head and the body in that there is a oneness, yet there's also a separateness. Uh, you see that further along over in chapter 5 when it talks about how God, Christ is working in uh, the body and he gave himself for the body. There's a distinction being made. But there's an idea here that Christ while he is separate from the body, fills the body. It permeates in all aspects. Now going back to this prayer that Paul has for the believers there. He tells them, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love towards the saints. Yet faith and love are not enough. They're not. Uh, Paul says it, it, it's not enough. It's not the ultimate. It, it's good to have this, but it's not enough. See, Paul prays that they will have this spirit, the Holy Spirit give them wisdom and revelation. And by having this wisdom and revelation, they'll be able to know God and know His surpassing greatness of His power that has exalted Christ. What God is doing in our life is conforming us to the image of Christ. That's his purpose. Here, in this aspect of where he is a fullness all in all, it permeates in every aspect of us so that we lose our identity. It's no longer us, but it's Christ. There's no longer me, but it's Christ. No longer do people see you, but they see Christ. That's the work that God is doing in the church of those who are believers. That Christ permeates all aspects of your life. See, it's not enough just to have faith and have love. God is shooting for something much bigger. Romans 8, uh, 29. It's His will that you be conformed to the image of His Son. The work that God is doing in your life is to conform you to look like Christ. And He is permeating fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, the question is, are you accepting and yielding to that work of God in your life? 
Or are you rebelling and hardening your heart towards him? Are you trying to hold on to your identity? Are you trying to hold on to your culture? Are you trying to hold on to, I vote this way. I have this career. I, I have this status. This is me. Or are you being lost daily in the image of Christ? Is he permeating every aspect of your life? Is he influencing your decisions? How you spend your time, your money? Well, where you're going on vacation? Now, some here might not be able to do that because you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You're not part of the body of Christ. There's never been a moment where you've accepted that Christ died for your sins. And that your sins separated it and you need a Savior and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. This isn't even a discussion right now of being submissive to the headship of Christ because you're not there. And I would invite you that today that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Other of us who are saved, are we submitting to God's work in our life of God's sovereign choice of having Christ as head and controlling every aspect of our life or are we rebelling against him? Let's pray. Father, I pray as we consider these verses that your spirit would work in our life. Father, if there is any of us who are unsaved, that today can be the day of salvation. Father, for other of us who we haven't been submitting to your sovereign choice, that Christ would be head and in charge, that Christ would permeate every aspect of us. I pray that today we would repent. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.